In October 2019, a team of visually impaired and sighted artists and collaborators took journeys together into the city of Bristol with the aim of uncovering the usually unheard stories of visually impaired citizens and returning these stories to the heart of the city narrative. The journeys were recorded and revealed such a treasure trove of insights and shared experiences that the City of Threads podcast was born. Each episode is hosted by core members of that team and features the journeys they took. So join us on an immersive audio journey into the City of Threads. Welcome to Record Breaking Baby. Record Breaking Baby. <laughs> I can't think of a better combination than comedy and romance. Oh no. Yeah. You know, that is actually a total winner. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Is it meant to be a seat? I'm kind of wondering if we're looking at a piece of art right now. I would almost certainly just have sat on it. I've never quite forgot that night. It was like helping me get through that time in my life. T.S. Eliot yeah. is uh, an anagram of toilet. It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've both got very loud, raucous laughs. Yeah. And we're both quite extrovert, we're quite out there, and we're quite what I would call blurters. You know, yeah. We're just out with it. Say yeah. it. Yeah. You know, say it out. Oh, we say it as it is. Say it as it is. <laughs> Often when you go into a working environment in the arts, you're the first visually impaired person that um, this company has worked with. And so you always have to be your own advocate. Also, at some point you have to sort of put your foot down and say, no, you just, you have to change your process to accommodate um, yeah. people with different abilities. And this is the thing, isn't it? It's, it's a case of, like you have to work that extra harder it's not the case that you're only doing that job it's the case that you also have to fight for your rights to do that job constantly yeah and it shouldn't have to be like that it's funny because as an actor you are uh, for any actor you're always your own hype man in a way it is part of the job you're always saying pick me pick me pick me but for for disabled actors, there's just one more thing that they're saying, you know. Because you're, you're working with the unconscious assumptions. Exactly. All the time, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can see that. Welcome to Record Breaking Baby. I'm Emma Blackmore. And I'm Eleonora Ferry. And we're your co-hosts for this episode. That was us with Dougie Walker, whose journey features in this episode along with mine. Dougie is an actor and a writer, and he's also our City of Threads narrator. We're going to hear more from him later in the episode, but for now... We're going to start with my journey. We're in the light studio at Arnolfini, Bristol's Centre for Contemporary Arts and the place where all our journeys begin. I love coffee. I always love coffee. I've got to drink about five to function in the morning. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's a Especially lot. Especially on a work day. Yeah. Do you drink them through the day as well? No, after two o'clock I don't drink coffee. Yeah, I've got that. I've got a midday, my cut-off point. Oh, is that? Yeah. yeah, but two o'clock's mine purely because of work. That's Emma with her travelling companion, Rosie. They've only just met, but have already bonded over coffee. Here they are introducing themselves to others taking journeys that day. 
I'm Emma Blackmore and I'm the journey lead today. I'm Rosie Pobright and I'm the travelling companion. Uh, me and Rosie just met today. And before setting out, Emma tells Rosie her journey route and about her site and how she would like to be guided. So one site I'm completely blind in, one eye, and then the other eye I have very limited sight in with guiding. Rosie is going to hold my arm um, and I'm going to tuck my arm inside so it's quite secure I hold on to her, her, her arm. I do sometimes use a cane. But this time um, I have a guide with me. I'm going to be having guide training soon, so hopefully that'll be different. I also have the added thing that I have a hearing aid, so my guide, Rosie, they're helping a little bit extra to let me know just in case I don't hear things coming as well. Mm-hmm. So that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds pretty comprehensive. Yeah. 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 I think so. Okay. On their way out of the building. Okay, we're on, we're rolling. So the only thing that I can see really, really clearly in this hallway is this. Oh, yeah. Which is the fire hydrant. Hy- what are they called? Fire hydrant. That's it, hydrant. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, it's red, it's very bright, and it's quite good that it's really bright in this hallway, because if there was a fire, it would be very helpful. If there was a fire, do you think you'd be first there with the hydrant? Like, well, probably. Going out the Because I could see it. <laughs> <laughs> Once outside the building, they stop on the harbour side to read the first of four wild cards designed to be read during the journey. So, shall I read this yeah, card, yeah. this wild card? Take a moment to stand together, notice your breath, the ground beneath your feet, the movement of the air and the sounds of the city. As they tune into the city, the weather takes a turn for the worse, so they set off in search of a taxi to take them to Emma's first stop, the Eye Hospital. As they go, Emma describes her ideal weather conditions. It's kind of in the middle with me because I like, like sun. Too much sun is like, like reverses it the other way. Yeah. And then like too much rain and wind, it's thrown it like this way. So it's like I'm like kind of in the middle. I like it kind of like settling. That's like. Like not too bright, not too dark. Yeah. Not too wet, not too dry. And no snow. <laughs> Snow, snow is the worst. Oh man, snow is the worst, I always yeah. fall over in snow. I avoid and as the rain begins to pour, Rosie spots a taxi and they climb in. If you haven't guessed it already, Emma is a born and bred Bristolian. She's from a large, close-knit family and grew up in Mangotsfield, on the outskirts of Bristol, which, when Emma was little, had the feel of a leafy and friendly village. As we follow Emma's journey through the places that mean something to her in the city, we'll also be finding out a bit more about her story. Emma and Rosie have arrived at Emma's first stop. So we are now at the Bristol Eye Hospital, which in fact is where I began. Founded in 1808, the Bristol Eye Hospital is one of the country's leading speciality hospitals. And I do like this building because it's very tactile. Yeah. So I, well, when I was a kid, I, uh, like, this is how I used to know no, no, we were here. Because like, of these kind yeah. of carved bricks that yeah. we've got. Yeah. Yeah, like, I used to always love, like, standing on here. It used to be my thing, like, standing on here, feeling across the wall and all that. When I was, I think it was about a month old, I was brought into the Bristol... Well, I came here before that. I came here, like, literally not long after I was going to be tested and stuff like that, about two days old. Mm-hmm. And they found out, figured out I had cataracts. 
Emma's visual impairment is as a result of rubella syndrome, a condition that can affect the eyes, ears and heart, and is caused when a woman contracts German measles whilst pregnant. So um, when I was about just under a month old or a month old, 28 days I think it might have been, I had my first operation to remove one of the cataracts. Mm-hmm. Between having the other one removed at two months old, uh, the old children's hospital was then just up the road. So um, I was up there pretty much in between mm. the whole time because I had an infection in my infection. Ugh. So I was so young, it's like really vulnerable and everything. So they had to get rid of that before they could do the other operation. So they were hoping to do it like a week or so after. Right, okay. But they, they couldn't. get you better first. Yeah. yeah. So then once that, I had that cleared, they transferred me back down here, mm-hmm. had my second operation. At that point, I was the youngest baby in the West UK to have cataracts removed. Wow. Yeah. Gosh. I've now had that record beaten when I was 25, I think it might have been. And I met that child. Right. Who was a week old. Meeting that child had a big impact on Emma. But we'll come back to that later. We used to get the hospital bus up to here because when I was younger, we didn't have a car. Yeah. So we used to get the bus into town and then get the hospital bus to whichever hospital we was going to. Yeah. So that used to be, well, probably about three or four times a week because I had so many consultants oh and so many different hospitals. Yeah, yeah, Sometimes yeah. twice a day because yeah. we had hospital appointments in the morning or different hospital appointments in different hospitals. Once in primary school, the amount of time taken attending medical appointments began to affect Emma's education. But then it got to a stage where they had to, all the consultants got in one room, that was a very big room, um, <laughs> and they just said, look, we need to sort this out because Emma's education is starting to fail. Right, because you're spending all this time yeah. going between one another and another. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was still primary school, but they said, look, she's going to be starting secondary school soon. They yeah. have to do something about this. Emma's appointments were rescheduled to reduce her time away from school, but it wasn't until Emma was eight that she was discharged from the eye hospital. So when I got discharged from this hospital, I was still in primary school the first time. My my class actually threw me a party. Oh. Like, because they were so happy for me, because they knew how much sight problems I had. It was so sweet. Yeah, that's great. Because they used to love me taking off my patch in reception. Like, that was a big deal. Like, yeah. I was pirate Emma. But that's cool, because it didn't make a difference. They just used to like it. Like, yeah. it was a cool, fun thing. It wasn't yeah. a difference. So, um... Yeah, this, this place means quite a lot to me. The rain has now dried up, and Emma and Rosie leave the eye hospital, walk past the Bristol Royal Infirmary and the Children's Hospital, and turn down a small back road that cuts behind Bristol Beacon. They are on their way to Emma's second stop. And while they do that, let's pick up the thread of Emma's story. So, when I left primary school, I uh, went to secondary school, um, as everyone knows, secondary and primary school are completely different. Um, and as someone who has like added needs, um, things weren't put in place properly for me, either like for my disabilities. They had a care plan in place, but the school didn't follow it. I experienced quite a bit of uh, bullying. Uh, I think it's more so the case that kids didn't understand what was going on with me. Um, my school did try to help by getting someone in to try and explain my disabilities and a lot of the kids did kind of then understand that I did get, I did have friends, I didn't say I didn't have friends because I did have friends. When it came to year 10, because I was take, like trying to stay off school as much as possible, I would take, sound ill. Sometimes it was making me so ill that I was ill, but sometimes it was a case of I don't want to go to school, I was petrified to go to school. Uh, it came to the decision that I would be home tutored. Um, through the school, so they'd have my one-to-one support workers come to the house 
and teach me through my GCSE years. That was great, but my social aspect was suffering really bad. So one of my tutors who actually ran the youth, local youth work club, Rachel, uh, she was lovely, she was brilliant. And she was like really, as I say, down with the kids. She said to my mum, oh, do you want me to take Emma up to the youth club? So Emma went along. I was scared, like, you know, you would be when you've been away from kids of that age for so long. But I did, this one memory of, um, that I have is going to the cinema with them. A lot of them there were from a dance group because Rachel taught dance. The film we went to see was Honey, which was a street dance film uh, with a lot of, like, R&B music. I remember going and we were all dancing in between, like, you know, loving it. It was brilliant. And the last track on the film, the song itself has really big meaning for me. It's called I Believe. The song itself, like, pings something in me. I've never quite forgot that night. It was like helping me get through that time in my life. It was a very special night for me that night. And it gave me that light bulb moment. Because at that point, I didn't think I was able to get through, do as well as what my friends could do, like educationally kind of thing. But that night, I realised that I can. And music has continued to mean a lot in Emma's life. I listen to any sort of music, but R&B is definitely my kind of vibe. So on my left hand, yep, yeah, left hand, um, and going down my arm um, on the side, I've got a tattoo that says, uh, when words fail, music speaks uh, in writing. Um, and it's quite meaningful to me because, like, music is meaningful. Like, you know, when you're, like, a bit isolated from the world, you just sit listen to music, it kind of helps, like a therapy, music therapy kind of thing. So I work for Sense the Deaf Blind Charity and we do a lot of music therapy. So the children we work with um, have sight impairment, hearing impairment, some more complex needs, and um, they love music. So we put the music on and then they'll be on a soundboard. So they'll be led on it and um, they can feel the music coming through. I have a hearing impairment myself as well, so I could put my hand on it and like just close my eyes and um, have my take my hearing aid out. And I'll just feel the how they're feeling it, like the vibrations to the music. And because like, even if I don't know the song, I can still feel like the rhythm of it coming through and it's quite good. So I know now that if I, even if I lose my hearing, I can still experience that. We're back with Emma and Rosie on their journey and are now in the slightly subterranean Frogmore Street in the older part of the city, where you'll find LGBTQ plus clubs and the oldest working pub, The Hatchet, which allegedly had a front door covered in pirate skin. They turn on to the busy city centre. So we are now at the Hippodrome, yep. which uh, throughout my 31 years of life, I have been here quite a few times. The Hippodrome was built in 1912 and survived the Blitz. It seats almost 2,000 people, hosts plays, music, musicals, comedy and dance, and it's Emma's second stopping point. I love this place because, A, it's quite tactile, and also because of all the theatre stuff that goes on in there. My auntie actually used to get us all tickets for Christmas, like all the family, Aww. like that, and there's quite a few of us. What she used to do is get us like front row-ish kind of tickets, like wow. three, four rows back. Wow. That was enough for me to be able to visually see I'm not right at the front because I'm too short, but mm -hmm. enough to see so I can, as long as I want someone who was really tall sat in front of me, it was fine. Yeah. 
And is that is that for the panto? Pantos. Yeah. Um, I've also been to see Wicked. That was good fun. Dancing, singing. Man, you know, falling over the banister. So. Because she was dancing so yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah. She sounds like a cool auntie. Oh yeah. I've been to the Lion King. That was my favourite. Just amazing. Yeah. Like I, I was beaming from ear to ear. Like you get this massive giraffe just come down and yeah. you're like looking up like I'm so short and I'm looking up and this massive giraffe thing. <laughs> it was just awesome. And it's not just the live performance that makes this a place of sensory delight for Emma. It's the very fabric of the building. It's an old building, isn't it? So mm. it's just like you fill the walls and you know it's an old building. My way to go through, I tend to stand by the wall. So I'm, I'm secure. So I've got someone on my arm and then I stand by the wall. So I feel the, wall, the walls like going through. You know when you go upstairs, the railings are quite... Um, the bell's metal, um, but it's at the bottom, it curls off. The old walls and rounded metal banisters that curl at the end are all tactile way markers on Emma's journey to the auditorium. I will wait for everyone to go in, so it's easier for me to go and find my seat mm-hmm. and someone guide me in. It's an amazing space, isn't it, when you get inside the Hippodrome? Yeah. It's, it's like this big, round space. Yeah. Like, does it feel different to be sat there than it is, like, inside another space? Like, yeah. Can you tell? Yeah, yeah. It's like, like it's big. Like, you feel, you feel tiny in there. That particular room feels like a massive building to mm. me. The only thing I criticise about it is I have fallen over and the lighting's not great. Yeah, because it's quite dark, mm. isn't it? I always take a moment to allow my eyes to adjust to the lighting. Yeah, I can really relate to that. I've been an audience member and a performer, and although I'm sighted, I do have very poor sight in my left eye, and the darkness of theatres has been a real issue for me at times. There have been many threads of connection since Eleanor joined the project. I mean, I came into the, into the project right back at the beginning in 2016, and at the beginning I think that I just thought it would be just an int- as, as a sighted um, performer, I just thought it would be an interesting project um, to be involved in, to find out how to make theatre with visually impaired um, people. But it's changed a lot over the, over the period of time, and I now feel very much an integrated part of, uh, of the team. Including getting to know Emma. Yeah, we went outside and we were having a laugh about something or other and we just found so much in common. I don't think I have a friend like you, like, because you are like me, but you can also help guide me because you have more life experience. Well, darling, I'm 40 years older than you. You can help me say, no, I'm not. I would hope, to, if I was going to do it, which I haven't ever felt the need to, I would hope I could do it with a bit of humour. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I like about you, because you are like me and you would tell me. But this is why I think we get on so well, because we're just... We're blurters, right? Yeah, we're blurters. <laughs> we're blurters. I like that. I like that. I'm taking that. So yeah. That's going in my Emma dictionary. Back with Emma and Rosie. I know that whenever I go and see something where there's like a big live audience... There's a, there's a different feeling mm. to pick up on that, like the electricity. I may not be able to see like as well as everyone else, but I can just definitely sense like when everyone's like really buzzing, really mm. enjoying it. Mm. So, as the old Santa lay dying, the new Santa enjoyed a glass of sherry with his Minsk spies. <laughs> and that's Dougie, our series narrator, and the other journey taker in this episode. We're going to follow the thread of Dougie's story now, and come back to Emma's a bit later. Yep, that's all right with me. Right then, let's head back to the Arnolfini, 
and joined Dougie and his travelling companion Andy on the day they took their journey. Is it meant to be a seat? So what we're looking at here is just by the wall up here on the second floor of the Arnolfini, we've got a kind of um, grey metal box. But it, what, what's interesting about it is that it's kind of been, it's, it's been interfered with. It's got kind of pock marks in it mm. and the side's been kind of crushed and bent slightly and twisted. So it's kind of got a warped yeah. surface. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering if we're looking at a piece of art right now. Um, certainly, we're so looking at something that's been... I would almost certainly just have sat on it. And here they are a bit earlier, practising with the audio recorder. This is a test. And introducing themselves to the other journey takers. My name's uh, Dougie Walker. I'm going to be the journey lead today. Um, my name's Andy Kelly, and I'm going to be the travelling companion. And Dougie and I know each other from uh, performing in a theatre company together. We perform in an improvised theatre show. All of us as journey leads started off the day by explaining to our companions about our site. So, we were actually discussing this just before we, uh, we got into the circle. Um, I have two different eye conditions. Um, one is called Stargardt's uh, disease or Stargardt's syndrome. Uh, and it is a macular dystrophy of the retina, uh, which um, basically means that um, there is a, an area in my central vision which uh, doesn't uh, get the proper um, the proper information doesn't travel from my eye to my brain, right. um, and that area slowly builds up as I as I get older. And uh, I have another condition called keratoconus, which is um, sort of like astigmatism, uh, but sort of, you know, astigmatism plus. Mm -hmm. And the kind of things they needed to look out for on the journey? It's really variable depending on the conditions. Yeah. Uh, but things like crossing roads, you know, I'd be a bit more cautious. Um, sometimes finding the edges of steps or curbs. Um, and... Uh, yeah, obstacles um, such as cyclists or pedestrians are things that, um, yeah, if I'm travelling with someone that I might ask them to, to look out for. Um, I don't travel with any specific visual aids except for um, magnifiers if I was trying to find my way around. I've got a little monocular telescope that I would use. Um, yeah say if I needed to see a street sign or yeah. read a bus timetable or something like that. And all essentials communicated, they leave the Arnolfini to head for Dougie's first stop. Just been walking um, up uh, from the Arnolfini and it's a, a really lovely sort of cobbled uh, street which is sort of lovely uh, underfoot. Um, uh, and then we've transitioned, and almost sort of without noticing, if I think if I wasn't paying special attention, I wouldn't have noticed that we suddenly transferred to a bit which is now tarmacked. And this still feels like a pedestrian area in terms of the amount of, you know, that there aren't any cars here. But suddenly you are on tarmac and you think, oh, wait a second, am I, <laughs> have I just wandered into a road? Oh, and as we speak, which, there's a van. <laughs> a van comes hearing around the corner. And he wasn't going to stop. He wasn't going to stop, was he? It was a transit van with <laughs> places to go. That was, um, uh, I feel like that was real serendipity in that, in that recording. And, and we could probably just leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> and after that near miss, Dougie and Andy carry on. Before they get to their first stop, let's hear how Dougie ended up in Bristol. So I'm from Edinburgh originally. Uh, I'm one of four 
I have a brother and two sisters. My brother actually has the same eye condition that I do. We went to a mainstream school um, and then I moved to Brighton for university. I studied philosophy, but got involved with the drama society and started doing comedy while at university. And then a few years later, I met my partner, Ray, uh, in Brighton before we moved to Bristol together. They've arrived at Dougie's first stop, the Harbourside. So we're sort of outside the M shed uh, and it's the place where there's all the train tracks where the steam train still uh, has, a, has a chug on a Saturday for the uh, delight and edification of children. And um, and, yeah. and adults. Um, and uh, we're next to the harbour side. And this is the place when we first uh, found out about this journey, this was the bit that I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to come here. So, like I said, I moved to Bristol about uh, 18 months ago. And it wasn't totally an easy move. We'd heard lots of nice things about Bristol, but I've lived in Brighton for 12 years, so all of my favourite people and pubs were in Brighton. Mm. I, it took a long time to feel at home here and to feel fond of it. You know, it was a bit of a trial to start with. And I can remember about a year ago, so when I'd been living in Bristol for about six months, um, this was the first place that I really felt fond of, that I was really like, ah, yeah, this is where I live and I'm fond of it. And I can remember it because it was autumn uh, and it was nighttime and it was a bit cold. Being a bit cold is a real trigger for that feeling of uh, that feeling you get where you know you're going to be nostalgic about something in the future do you know what I mean? oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there should be a term for that shouldn't there? I bet there is yeah. bet we, the, Jap the Japanese love a word oh they'll have several oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. while we are thinking about all the different sensory sort of experiences you know there's loads here there's there's the kind of smell of the river there's the wind always in here um, but actually as a visually impaired person as most visually impaired people do I have still got useful vision and I think here is a place where it really comes into its own in that um, the lights reflecting in the water make this really beautiful sort of blurry ethereal picture I, I don't know what it looks like to people with full vision but it looks really sort of shimmering and beautiful to me I would also describe it as shimmering beautiful yeah. <laughs> and these um, cranes that I guess used to be for unloading ships yep um, I really love them, and to me, they look almost exactly like elephants. Like, I do just think of them as the <laughs> elephants now. Sort of Salvador Dali-ish, yeah, kind do. of mechanical elephants with kind of, kind of stock... sticking their trunks up in the yeah, air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stocky yeah. little legs, stocky bodies, and then their trunks held aloft. Dougie and Andy say goodbye to the harbour and set off across the city towards Dougie's second stop. And while they do that, here's me and Dougie talking more about appreciating the visual side of the city. It's maybe a common misconception that people who are visually impaired don't, um, or aren't interested in, in how things look. <laughs> um, which maybe, maybe it sounds like that makes sense, but um, almost all visually impaired people have some useful vision how a city looks, the kind of aesthetic, the way it makes you feel, that is a huge part of your experience of the city. What I'm missing is detail, um, which means that my experience of the city that I'm in is going to be very different from a sighted person's because I'm missing all those details, but the, the kind of the textures and the colours are all there. I think what a lot of people miss is that the fact that we can still appreciate stuff in the city 
but we appreciate it in a much different way. Yeah, and even different from one another, I imagine. Yeah. The yeah. visual experience we have will be interesting or beautiful or exciting in a, in a in a different way to sighted people. You know, there's this idea that um, some um, painters, people, you know, impressionists like Monet and Manet had bad vision and that's why they made these blurry paintings. But that's now considered, you know, this really sort of interesting and beautiful way of looking at the world. And I think actually that's a, probably a fair description of what I'm seeing when I look at the cityscape is, a, is an impressionist view of it. You know, it's it's patches of colour and things blurring into one another. But that's, yeah. you know, that's great. Um, on my way here this morning, actually, I did actually see someone painting a lovely picture on the side of a building. Yeah. And it was lovely yellow and a few different other colours. And it was just beautiful. Back in the city journey. Uh, come round the corner from, from the harbour side. We're on this uh, completely flat pavement, but all of a sudden, cutting straight through in front of us is this cycle lane. And it's a nightmare. Yeah. It's a nightmare for, uh, for, for visually impaired people. I mean, I don't know what I it's mean, like. I would like to add it's a nightmare <laughs> yeah. for sighted people as well. It's just... And, and all along here, actually, there's all these cycle lanes where you... Basically, at some point, you do just have to step out into the cycle lane. Yeah. There's and, no other way of doing it. And, and I've just... This is... On this journey today is literally the first time I've noticed the bit that we've come to does seem to be some sort of official crossing point because there's a bit where, you know, there's some uh, painted markings that indicate that the cyclists maybe ought to give way to pedestrians. There's a little blue circle that says share with care. So uh, this, does it. this designated area we're, we're sharing. So yeah. um, if you're lucky enough to have stumbled upon this designated area, this is the point at which you are officially meant to be sharing with yeah. care. Um, but yeah, my God, is it uh, is it difficult to navigate at I mean, any other point? It seems to be clear now, but you never, you know, you don't know who's going to come around that corner. Well, we're just going to have to take the plunge. <laughs> Dougie and Andy have arrived at Queen Square. Not strictly a stopping point, but they've been waylaid. It is uh, has a. I don't know what you call it, a sort of gravel, it's not quite gravel, is it, because it's more compounded than that, but a sort of slightly sandy path that goes to the middle of it. This is putting my powers of description to the test. These are things I've never had to articulate before, exactly mm. what this material is. Yeah. yeah, it's gravelly, but not loose gravel. There's yes. something, it's been set in something. Yeah. Don't ask me what. Um, <laughs> I'm so ignorant. <laughs> I've but, got no idea. But uh, it, again, makes a quite a pleasing noise when you walk on it. Yeah, it does. It's, um, and, uh, uh, you know, and the grass. I do love to walk on the grass. Yeah, it's, it's, a nice little, it's a nice little square. A statue catches their eye. A bloke on a horse. A bloke on a horse. Not the Queen. Don't know who Ironically. it is. Um, I always need to check who it is, and I remember I'm always disappointed. Right. Shall I, shall I find out for the record? I don't, no, I... Not, okay, it's a bloke on a horse. Yeah, I sort of feel George, like... Is it George? Might be George. Could be. I mean, if I had to, you know... <laughs> you had to take a punt on a if name I had to take a punt a on a horse. Yeah, George is a good shout. Yeah, maybe Henry. Was it William? Will, ah, William. Might be William. Yeah. I'm going to go with George. And with that sorted out, they head off. And as they get to Dougie's next stop, it starts raining. Here we are in Castle Park. I used to, when for the first year that I lived in Bristol, I lived up in St George, and I work down in Southville, 
to get to work I would get the bus sort of halfway basically I would get the bus down to uh, to, to near here and then I would uh, walk through Castle Park so this was a route that I walked quite a lot one of the first places I got to know in Bristol I guess I really like it it's lovely to have this space next to the river I really like the river um, the path that goes through has a pedestrian bit and a cycle bit uh, but they're fairly well defined, you know. It's just, it, the whole way along, it, one side is the, you know. I mean, I suppose you, know you do you have to know which is which. But one side is the cycle path, and one side is the pedestrian bit, and and it's kind of it's it, it's easier for me to 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 stick to that and know. Yeah, I'm going to be I'm not in that much danger of getting clattered into by a bike here. I like how kind of rabbit warreny it is. There's sort of all these different crisscrossing paths that get through it. Oh, it feels like a very Bristol <laughs> sort of, um, you know, all, all life is here sort Indeed. of sort of part of Bristol, which yeah, I like. Definitely, nice part. Nice part. Dougie and Andy are on the move again through the rain and the puddles. Just recently, you might recall, I was on my way to uh, to your birthday party. Oh yeah. And my Google Maps took me through a park at night, mm. and that was a classic can't see the puddles Shit. I ended up fully <laughs> just fully like up to my ankles in, <laughs> in puddles several times something that's interesting about being new to Bristol um, it's the first new place I've moved since Google Maps was a thing ah so you're able to navigate more easily yeah in a sense more easily it does help you navigate more easily, but possibly it builds up a reliance on on using that technology and that method which you wouldn't otherwise have. Well, this is the modern world. We're outsourcing everything to the, the machines and the Google, aren't we? So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess so. They've arrived at one of Dougie's no-go zones in the city. What is the name of this roundabout? Andy? I would refer to this as the Old Market Roundabout. Ah. I don't know that. that yeah, this is, so we're standing at the edge of Castle Park. To the left of us, we've got a road taking us down to Broadmead. And we've got the roundabout here. If you turn right, it'll take you to Temple Mead. If you go straight on, it'll yeah. take you down Old Market. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> old Market <laughs> Roundabout. I think yeah. that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is... So on my way to work, when I was coming from St George, I used to get off at Old Market and then walk across this roundabout and then up into Castle Park. And... You know, about a month ago, maybe a bit longer, uh, all of a sudden, this roundabout is a complete nightmare uh, because they are doing some sort of... Re- they're replacing the pedestrian bridge or they're, they're doing something and just huge sections of it are uh, barriered off with those big sort of steel barriers and concrete blocks and bits that you would normally walk through are impassable and you have to go sort of around the outside but when you do go around the outside there's bits of pavement missing and you have to go this side and that side or that side and um, as a visually impaired person it is um, uh, it's pretty disconcerting to Mm. all of a sudden have a a, a familiar part of your route changed I was recently had to have a uh, a tribunal for my personal independence payment or PIP for short PIP is a payment that disabled people can apply for. And one of the questions they're asking is, do you need uh, assistance or aids to conduct a familiar journey? 
and uh, and one of the things that um, sort of uh, one of the arguments that comes up between those you know advocates for disabled people and you know the DWP the Department for Work and Pensions who are responsible for administering PIP <laughs> is familiar journeys aren't always familiar you know uh, yeah absolutely on a normal day when everything was as it was normal used to be and I was pretty good at navigating across this roundabout and into Castle Park but then all of a sudden something like this comes up and um, yeah it really throws you off and one of the things is to discover where you're meant to go you know there are signs that are written but you have to know that they're there and you have to be able to read them and when you come to a barrier and you could go either side of that barrier well here's a personal experience I had I was trying to get around the side of this roundabout and there was uh, this, there was a barrier and I couldn't tell which side of the barrier I was meant to be going it was like as I approached it was making a fork in the path and I wasn't sure which fork I was meant to take and I ended up taking the wrong fork and ran out of pavement after about 10 metres it sort of turned to sort of slag and sand and I realised oh I was meant to be on the other side of this barrier the whole time so I had to retrace my steps go onto the other side of the barrier go around the outside um, not something that would be very easy for someone who can see you know you'd be able to see that 10 metres there and go ha ha the pavement runs out but um, yeah there's a lot more trial and error as a visually impaired person which at, at best only takes up your time at worst gets you into hot water oh yeah yeah and we're going to take a short break here. Yeah, I need it after that roundabout experience. Back, Back soon. Welcome back to Record Breaking Baby. I'm Emma Blackmore. And I'm Eleonora Ferry. And we are your co-hosts. Right, let's dive straight back in. Leaving the nightmare of the no-go zone behind them, Dougie and Andy wind their way back through Castle Park, heading for their last stopping point. Yeah. Here we are in the Bristol Old Vic. Yeah, very, it's, uh, it's a lovely space. The Bristol Old Vic is the oldest theatre in Bristol and the oldest continuously working theatre in the UK. Dougie and Andy are sat in its shiny new foyer with a cup of tea. I... Uh, really love the theatre. I've always loved the theatre since I was... I think I was, went on stage for the first time age five. Wow. What was that for? And, uh, I used to do like community pantomimes oh, nice. all, as I was growing up. Uh, one of the things that I've really loved since coming here is, is the theatre scene in Bristol. It feels, uh, feels like quite a rich theatre scene. It feels like there's quite stuff on lots of different levels. You know, there's, there's a, a really nice range of theatres from this kind of small, community-based like up-and-coming artists, and then places like this, the old Vic. We really wanted to hear more about Dougie's theatre work. So we invited him for a socially distant chat back in September 2020. Like I said, when I went to university, I got involved with the Dram Society and comedy, and uh, and actually then was um, a professional comedian for many years. Oh, right. And the comedy I made over the years slowly became more theatrical and more theatrical until... Um, the last show I made, which I, I think um, you came to see, was uh, Of Christmas Past at the Tobacco Factory. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Yeah, same. It was... Uh, oh, thank you very much. It was... Um, <laughs> it was... Uh, I started writing it as a comedy and it ended up more or less a play. And so for the last few years, I've been doing more acting and theatre. So I've worked um, with 
the Globe doing some research and development. Really interesting work on comedy characters in Shakespeare that are blind and, and what is acceptable to laugh at and is it ever acceptable to use blindness in a comedy context and, and if it is, what do you have to do to make it acceptable and if it's not, what are you going to do when these scenes are in the play and, and that kind of thing. Earlier this year was in a show at the National Theatre which was a really exciting project because it had two visually impaired characters in the cast and so when I went up for the part I um, assumed that I was sort of going up for one of these visually impaired characters um, but as it turned out they cast uh, three visually impaired actors in the production but I was playing um, a sighted character yeah sort of fascinating process. How did you feel about that? Um, do you know what it's really interesting because I felt proud and I don't know if that's how I should have felt. <laughs> um, I can understand but, that. But I did. And I thought, um, I, when going up for that part, I was definitely um, thinking, ah, great, they're doing a play with visually impaired characters. This gives me a chance. Um, and then it turned out I wasn't playing one of them. And I took that as this, ah, it wasn't just because I'm visually impaired, which, of course, it wasn't. It was interesting doing that work especially as the, the two characters in the play were sort of fully blind characters. And none of the three actors um, were, were fully blind. We all had some vision and we all had very different vision. So it was really a collaborative process between the three of us to work on what those characters would be like. The characters in the play both used canes uh, and none of us were, were cane users having done as much work with visually impaired groups as I have, even though I don't use a K and I know about, you know, how often that's misrepresented. And so we were all really keen to avoid that kind of thing. I was interested to hear how Dougie's access needs were met as a visually impaired actor. Often when you go into a working environment in the arts, you're the first visually impaired person that um, this company has worked with. And so you always have to be your own advocate. Also, at some point, you have to sort of put your foot down and say, no, you just, you have to change your process to accommodate um, yeah. people with different abilities. And this is the thing, isn't it? It's, it's a case of, like, you have to work that extra harder. It's not the case that you're only doing that job. It's the case that you also have to fight for your rights to yeah. do that job yeah. constantly. Yeah. And it shouldn't have to be like that. It's funny because as an actor, you are, uh, for any actor, you're always your own hype man. In a way, it is part of the job. You're always saying, pick me, pick me, pick me. But for, for disabled actors, there's just one more thing that they're saying, you know. Because you're, you're working with the unconscious assumption. Exactly. All the time, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can see that. The place I learnt how to do most of that was from this theatre company called Extant. Extant are the UK's leading visually impaired theatre company. The most important thing I learned from my work with Extant was, was definitely the advocacy stuff and, and the sort of having the confidence to be assertive about what you need as a disabled artist. Here's Maria Shoddy, its artistic director, talking about their work. I brought together some other visually impaired performers who... I'd met through my work at Shape. The deaf community was sort of doing this for themselves 
um, forming theatre companies and working specifically around their impairment or cultural experience. And I thought, well, this is not happening around visual impairment. Maybe, maybe we should start doing that ourselves. And that's how the whole thing began. I think um, on one level, uh, especially around our productions, we still are that space for exploring the creative perform performing voice. The exploration around visual impairment um, in terms of form and content, that's on one level. On another level, we're a training organisation and on another level, we're a participatory organisation. So we have other things happening um, as well as the productions and the research and development around those productions. Dougie was part of the first year of Pathways, which was and is a, a training programme that initially came out of an idea. I was thinking about creating laboratory kind of incubation space. And we just started to think about the wider industry and what there was out there for visually impaired people and then how what we were offering could um, could support um, visually impaired people through a bespoke training program. And then they also work on something together um, and, and create a sort of a, sh a showcase at the end of it. The Pathways Dougie did was for VI actors. This year they ran one for directors, next it's writers, with future plans for backstage crew. Other aspects of our training do include working with venues and also audiences. So, for instance, around our touring work, we have a wraparound programme of activities that are designed to, in the lead-up, to a sh one of our shows going to a regional venue so that's been that's been great and as part of that because there are lots of visually impaired people um coming to our show attending uh, a theater for um you know or, or that venue maybe for the first time we then run training with the venue around um visual impairment awareness we found like in a couple of the regions that that some of those groups have actually so been so sort of sustainable that they've formed into their own drama sort of performance groups themselves and are still going now without really any of our involvement. Extant's work is great and much needed, but on the whole, the art sector has a long way to go to become more inclusive. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is a place I like to come. Uh, I'm a member of the Old Vic, they, they, they talked me into that. <laughs> As Andy and I leave the cosy foyer of the Old Vic and head back to Arnolfini, we read the final wildcard designed to be read out at the end of the journey. Here we go. Oh, we've got a quote here from T.S. Eliot. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Well, that's, that's what we're doing. As you head back towards the Arnolfini, reflect together on this quote and what might have changed for you or that you might be noticing for the first time as a result of taking this journey together today. Mm. What are we noticing for the first time? T.S. Eliot yeah. is uh, an anagram of toilet. It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And as Andy reflects on the experience of his journey with me, I'm resuming my previous role, narrating. Certainly doing this, this walk has given me a better sort of understanding of the experience of walking around outside as a visually impaired person. I feel like it's kind of raised my consciousness a bit. Kind of, kind of give, given me a sort of mm, something a bit more 
you know, help me stand in that person's shoes a bit more, so to speak. Mm. Since we last saw them, Emma and Rosie have travelled from the Hippodrome, crossed the city centre shared space, a no-go zone for many of our travellers, Emma included, and arrived outside Turtle Bay, Caribbean bar and restaurant, and Emma's final stopping point. We are sat outside of Turtle Bay, which is one of my favourite restaurants. It's really nice and I just love the smells, because obviously being VR your senses are ten times more stronger yeah. in every other aspect. Like yeah. my hearing's down as well, so it's like any smell from anywhere, I could smell probably a mile off. Yeah. Like, so this place is awesome for that. So even though we're, we're, we're sat outside it, I can, can you smell, smell it? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, a few years back, I was introduced to it by my partner, who is Jamaican. I work English Jamaican. But um, I like I love Jamaican food. I love it. And basically, she brought me here. We come here on a few different occasions, because they do like a Valentine's um, evening out. And I was in yeah. hospital at the time. So I thought I'd ring up and or, uh, arrange it as like a surprise. So I rang my mum and said, oh, can you get me, like, ring the hospital and just say to her, I'm going to let Emma come home for the evening. like that. And I didn't tell my partner that I was doing it. So um, I did it and I arranged for her to come here and then uh, go to the cinema and stuff like that. And it was a lovely meal. They had lovely music going on. What's your favourite meal here? Curry goat. Curry goat? Yeah, curry goat, yeah. Nice. I love curry goat and Natalie usually has chicken. The funniest thing is, with my sight, when I come out the toilet, basically I always check my shoes. Like I, I bend down and lift both my shoes up to check toilet paper. Right? <laughs> yeah. And we came here on that Valentine's night, and basically I went to the toilet and I checked my shoes. Shoes were fine. Didn't realise until I got home from here that I'd actually had a bit hanging up my trousers. No. <laughs> <laughs> and Natalie didn't realise either. She oh, said, well. "Oh my goodness, that must you must have walked out the restaurant." And one of the <laughs> rest waiters here was actually staring at me, and I thought she thought I was cute. But <laughs> she's checking you out. Yeah, she was checking you out. Yeah, no. I had toilet paper <laughs> hanging from my trousers. That's one memory that stands out to me, and that's the thing. Like stuff like that when you're VI can happen quite a oh, lot. Yeah. But you know, I'm quite one of those people that can look back on that and just laugh. I'm sorry for laughing. I'm laughing because it's something I do all the time. <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. I can't think of a better combination than comedy and romance. Oh, no. Yeah. You know, that is actually a total winner. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I told Rosie how it doesn't matter in my relationship that one of us is VI and the other one isn't because we work as a team. So you're on the nose. Is she Is she the eyes? Yeah. She got, she she's got the eyes, I'm the nose. Right, yeah. yeah. She's got the vision. So to, together, we kind of built up together as one kind of sensory kind of element. We've got all the senses between us. Like, so it works. It works, great. though. She, on another Valentine's night, she organised a night down at the planetarium. Yes, right. So for us, to, me to see this, because I love star glazing and stuff like that, and she wanted me to experience that before my eyesight got really bad. Oh. So, and she knows how much that means to me and stuff like that, so oh. she organised a star gaze night in the planetarium, which was awesome. Oh my god. Oh, that's amazing. Like, she knows how much it means to me to yeah. experience stuff like that in case the worst does happen. And what is the worst? Then? That I lose my eyesight completely. I mean, oh. my hearing's 
deteriorating and, and they did say it's possible that my eyesight's deteriorating. It hasn't happened, it hasn't deteriorated in a while, so hopefully not. It's no. stable at the moment, so that's good. So that makes you really value what sight and what hearing you have yeah. now yeah. and do things now. And it really al- yeah, and it. it also makes me value like how important it is to have inclusion in our city. Understanding of other people's needs, anything like that, like yeah. it's just like value life. But you only get and one shot at it. That's it. Yeah. That is it. Yeah. Absolutely. I completely believe that too. And like to hear you talk about really going into the detail of like sitting and having a meal with your partner and like the smells and like yeah. and the love and the it's just comedy beautiful. as well. You're making my heart swell. <laughs> it's so nice. Yeah. It's good to hear these stories. Me and Rosie had a Zoom call to talk more about love and romance and finding our feet as part of the LGBTQ plus community. I think everyone feels those struggles, like, are you going to be accepted? I've spent quite a lot of my life feeling like I just didn't fit in with any of it. And so therefore trying to find ways to fit in. Yeah, yeah. Like discomfort feels like it felt like it was part of the deal. And then, yeah, it's only the last few years I'm like, oh, it's still it's you know it's only been a few years for me and like which is so it's still quite new and exciting in some way yeah funnily enough I only came out to my friends because one of my friends was getting picked on one of the boys basically called a gay in the class like Mm. and um I took around and said what's wrong with that I'm gay I just sat there blunt out said it that's the first time I've said it out loud in front of the whole of the class and then all the girls came up to me after said knew it (laughs) (laughs) knew it like they they knew it all along I was like really I was like they were like yeah we were just waiting for you to say it (laughs) (laughs) it's but it's so it's kind of annoying I've had a lot of people say yeah of course you are like what you know (laughs) yeah like well why didn't you tell me that like (laughs) (laughs) I think I found it easier that people did say that to me because then like it just made the acceptance after that a lot easier when I was 22, I found my wife. And um, then I was like really comfortable, I was happy. And that's when I first thought, oh, you know, this is what happiness is. This is what being in a relationship is. When they met Natalie, they fell in love with Natalie. They love Natalie more than me, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing, isn't it? Like, you know, if people really love you and care about you being happy, that's really the main thing they care about. As my family would say, you've got to go through a lot of thorns to get to the roses. And my nan, the first time my nan actually acknowledged when I, bless her soul, she's passed away now, but um, the first time she actually acknowledged that um, I was gay to my face was when she told me, I love Natalie, you're happy now, forget the rest, you're happy. And Mm. I bawled my eyes out then when nan (laughs) said that, I was so happy. Back in the city, Emma and Rosie have finished their journey and are headed back checking their shoes for toilet paper as they go. But before we leave Emma's journey, we're going to go back to that moment when Emma met the other record-breaking baby at the eye hospital. And I met that child. Right. It was a week, two weeks old when they had it done. And I met that, I was actually sat next to him and I realised they had cat tracks. Yeah. And I was speaking to them and um, it was in here and yeah. um, in the eye hospital. And, um, and they said, oh, she's got cataracts. And I said, oh, I've got my cataracts. I said, how old? And they said, two weeks old. She's having the open uh, next week, which would have been younger than me. Yeah. And um, I said, 
that means my record's been beaten. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, at this moment in time, it's done. I'm the youngest baby in the bike to pay to have it done. Oh, she said, oh my God, it's really nice to meet you. Like, how are you now? Like, I said, well, I'm 25. She said, I'm not doing too bad. Like, I work for a company that, like, supports people with sight loss. They said, oh my God, that's really inspiring to hear. Mm -hmm. So that, like, really touched me. Like, how, how do you feel about how far you've got? I do like the fact that I do work with people who are going through similar journeys. Like, I do like that. Like, mm. yeah, okay, my life didn't quite plan when I was younger. I wanted to be, do, do other things, but then I have found a path that works for me, so. After their journey, Emma and Rosie agree they've made a rare connection. And Rosie tells Emma what she is going to take away with her from the journey they've just done together. I really like it when people remind me that, like, uh, love is possible. <laughs> In the world, I feel like you've renewed my faith. Definitely. That's my achievement for today, then. Yes, you renewed someone's faith in, in love. And if that's not a good place to end an episode, we don't know what is. So that's the end of our episode, Eleonora. Yes, and this is also the last in our City of Threads main episodes. But don't forget to tune in to the sister episode of Record Breaking Baby. Where, through the magic of immersive sound, will take you deeper into the heart of some of the places and moments in the journeys. So you can experience the city in our shoes. Best listen to on headphones. Bye! To find out more about these podcasts and the people featured in this episode, you can find additional information at www.partexchangeco.com. Dot org dot uk